Hello and welcome to the Macabre Family Podcast, the original Macabre Family Podcast. I hope that everyone has had an amazing couple of weeks. Myself, on the other hand, have been on the wrong side of a flu, like cold, sinus infection, you name it. I've had it. <laughs> I went to the doctors last week. I don't have COVID and now I'm on the bed, thankfully. So we can get right into it. I would like to cite my sources for this episode. LATimes.com. There was like a multitude of articles there on the case. Also, CBSnews.com. Uh, there was an episode of Homicide for the Holidays on this case. It is season one, episode three, called A Christmas Massacre. Well, today I do have a pretty rough case for everyone. Um, I posted a little hint on social media, the Instagram, about this case, like a little picture. And, um, Sipping with Snap, a fellow podcast, recognized the story immediately, so I think I'm going to give them a little shout-out, so great job. Uh, everyone should give them a listen. They're a wonderful podcast. I absolutely love them. So, if you are a true crime follower, I think that you would have heard about this case. I say it is brutal. Like, brutal. Uh, we're going to hop right into it. Um, I heard this case on a few podcasts, and they seem to focus more on the murderer and not the victims. So right from the start, we're actually going to make sure the victims in this case get the full attention they deserve. We're going to start with Joseph Ortega. He was the son of Santiago and Dolores. They had immigrated from Torian, Mexico in the 1920s to the United States. Joseph was the first of his five siblings to be born in the United States. Santiago and Dolores moved back to Torin eventually. Alfonso, Joseph's older brother, who fought in World War II, would become like a second father to him. The whole family was very close. This is something Joseph would bring to his own family as he got older. During a visit to see his parents in Mexico in 1955, Joseph would meet Alicia. He was 27 and she was 17, but it was like love at first sight, as everybody would say. He even told his family that is the girl I'm going to marry. He got permission from her parents to take her on a date. They went to the theater and to dinner. Not long after this, they couple married and moved to Los Angeles. They ended up having five children together. We're going to get into the children in a bit. Papa Joe, as he was called, started an industrial paint company with the help of Alicia called Industrial Powder Coating Inc. They were able to buy a two-story home with a pool in Covina. Papa Joe loved to collect baseball hats and try to wear a new one every day. He was also a fan of Texas Hold'em, and he also owned a race horse that would compete at the Santa Anita racetrack. The family would always take camping trips as a huge group. Like I said before, the family was very devoted to each other. Uh, they would always spend time together. I mean, they were always together. Very close-knit family. On the day that uh, Joseph was killed, he was gonna, he was gonna, he was 80 years old. Elisa Ortega was born in Torn in 1938, the youngest daughter of Louise and Consuela. After marrying Papa Joe, moving to the United States, the couple would travel at least twice a year to visit the families in Mexico. Papa Joe and Alicia, at the end of our story, would have been married for 53 years. Although Papa Joe was a fan of blackjack and poker, Alicia was more of a quarter slot kind of poker player, like the video kind, where you put the quarter in, kind of situation. 
the family had two dogs that Alicia treated like her own kids, a mutt and Alaskan husky. A neighbor called Mitzi would go on to say how well-behaved and close all the kids were. Quote, when you walked into a room, every one of the Ortega kids would get up and give you a kiss and a hug. They were the most respectful family I'd ever known. It all started with Joe and Alicia. When Alicia was killed, she was 70 years old. James Ortega was the oldest of the Ortega children. He worked alongside his father at the paint shop for years until he opened his own shop in the early 80s about a mile down the road. This didn't stop him from having lunch with his dad and brother almost every day. Friends and family would say that James was more serious and competitive than his siblings. He was also a homebody who liked to stay close to home and his family. This is a thing that happens with all the family members, though, as you'll see, they are all very, very close. James married Teresa and had three children. At the time he was killed, he was only 52 years old. His wife, Teresa, was only 51. They don't talk much about Teresa as her family didn't want to comment much about her after all this happened. Charles Ortega worked at the paint company alongside his father until Papa Joe retired, and then he passed it down to Charles at the time that he was killed. Charles was still working there, but was in the process of passing it down to his own son. So the family business was staying in the family, and this was, they were working on three generations of them owning it. Everyone said that Charles was full of energy and passion. At a race, a horse race, a family friend recalls how one of the Ortega horses uh, that was racing ended up collapsing on the track, and Charles jumped the rail and ran onto the track to try to save the horse. Charles met his wife Sherry while they were in high school. They were in high school sweethearts. They got married and ended up having five children. Their son played baseball, and the whole Ortega family would go to every game. Like I said earlier, the brothers and Papa Joe would all eat lunch together almost every day. That is like just the type of family they were. The definition of close-knit. At the time he was killed, Charles was only 50 years old. Sherry Ortega would come early to pick up her kids on Fridays so they all could go with the family camping or ATV riding, anything like that. With the whole family. Sherry would sometimes help out at the paint shop, but she really enjoyed staying at home with the kids. They were her whole life and would do anything for them. They all had a close bond. When she was killed, she was only 45 years old. Elisa Ortiz was strict with her children, but never harsh. She wanted them to succeed. Alicia was divorced and lived in Ontario, California, about two blocks away from the school that her son Michael attended and played baseball. Everyone said that Alicia was a wonderful, caring, and overall good person. She was someone you could talk to, and she would li just listen to make sure everything better. Like, that's just the type of person. She, you had a problem, you went to her, she would talk to you and make everything just seem okay. Alicia was the sister of Charles and James and the daughter of Papa Joe and Alicia. She was 46 when she was killed. Michael Ortiz was Alicia's son. He was a kid who always would look on the bright side of things and had a passion for baseball. He was a senior at Ontario High School and one of the best pitchers on his team. He was a good student and had plans of going to Cal State Fullerton after he graduated. When he died, he was only 17 years old. A life ahead of him cut way too short. Sylvia Pardo was a hard worker, always cheerful, and a wonderful mom. The father of her two oldest children passed away in a car accident about 20 years before all this happened. She was a widow, 
for many years until she met George Orza through work. They had a daughter. About four years before all this happened, Sylvia would meet the reason we are all here today. Bruce Pardo. At first, the marriage seemed perfect. He was a lonely bachelor living alone with no furniture. Sylvia had three kids and plenty of stuff. The marriage ended, though, due to many problems caused by Bruce. We'll get into that in a bit, but just know they were finalized divorce about a week before this all went down. The judge ordered Bruce to pay $10,000 to Sylvia, and she got to keep the dog. The reason we are here today is Bruce Pardo. He is the son of an engineer and showed a knack for mathematics. He always loved being the center of attention, and even at his college graduation, didn't miss the opportunity to be the star of the show by taking a life-size doll with him when he got his diploma from college. Everyone who knew him recalls him as being very bright and smart. He landed a job at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in La Canada, Flintridge. Although he was smart, he didn't like to work. He was always looking for a way to beat the system. He even hacked the system to check on his co-workers' salaries. When Bruce was 24 in 1988, he met and became engaged to a co-worker at JPL named Delia. They invited 250 guests to the wedding. Bruce made Delia pay for mostly everything. Not only the wedding, but also the reception and the honeymoon to Tahiti. The wedding day came on June 17, 1989. Delia, along with the 250 guests, oh my goodness, Nancy Winder, Bruce's mom, and Brad, his brother, waited for over an hour for Bruce to show up. He did not. He bailed on the wedding that he made Delia pay for without a word to anyone, not even his own family. A week later, Delia discovered that Bruce emptied their joint savings account and decided to go to Palm Springs and blow all the money. So yeah, a real piece of shit. By 2001, it seemed that 37-year-old Bruce decided to become a family man and settle down. He was living in the Woodland Hills with his girlfriend, sorry, not the Woodland Hills. He was living in Woodland Hills with his girlfriend Elena and their 13-month-old son, Bruce Matthew. I'm going to call him Matthew. Early January, Bruce was supposed to be taking care of his son, but instead he was watching TV when Matthew fell into the pool in the backyard. When Lenny got home, she found Bruce holding their son screaming and crying. Bruce sat at his son's side in the hospital for a week. When the doctors determined that Bruce, uh, sorry, Matthew would never fully recover and be brain damaged and paraplegic, he split. Bruce just up and left. Uh, and Elena and Matthew never saw him again. In 2004, Bruce met Sylvia Ortega. They were introduced by her brother-in-law, who worked with Bruce at JPL. They were married January 29, 2006. They lived in a three-bedroom house in Montrose. They also bought an Akita named Saki. Everything was great at first. It seemed that Bruce was drawn to Sylvia's close-knit family. After the first year, though, Bruce grew distant and argued about money constantly. Bruce's mother, Nancy, grew close to Sylvia and her family as well. In 2007, Nancy let Sylvia know about Bruce's child, who he had abandoned, but still was claiming on his taxes, even though he didn't support him at all. So, getting money from him every year, even though he wasn't given a dime. This was the last straw for Sylvia, and they separated in March of 2008. She asked Bruce, if he could, she could stay in the house while her youngest daughter finished up kindergarten. At first, Bruce agreed, but then one day while Sylvia was out at her niece's birthday party, Bruce emptied the house of all her stuff and threw it in the driveway. 
This was her breaking point. She filed for divorce and moved with her sister in Glendale. Bruce ended up leaving his job at JPL and started working for ITT Radar Systems. He was ordered to pay Sylvia spousal support on June 18, 2008. The first check bounced and the second one he stopped payment on. Because God forbid he pay, you know, money to the woman he just kicked out of the house. This guy was making over six figures. Sylvia was only making 30000 So he could afford it, he just didn't want to pay it. Uh, this was about the moment when Bruce made up his mind and started to hatch a plan like a evil little chicken. On June 13th, Bruce went to a place called Gun World in Burbank. He bought a 9mm handgun for $1,000. In July, Bruce was fired from ITT for billing fraudulent hours. This is the point where I think Bruce really went only, like, went from worrying about life to worrying about a plan. And his plan was not going to be good. On August 8th, Bruce went back to Gunworld and bought a nine, another 9mm. In California, the law is if you're only allowed to buy a concealable weapon once a month. So he did this same routine three more times. So he had now five 9mm by November 13th. We're going to like backtrack just for a minute. Like, because on September 8th, he went and ordered a special custom Santa suit from Jerry's Costumes. Jerry would later state that most people just rent the costume, but Bruce wanted it custom. He asked for more room in the suit. We'll get to why later. Around the time he ordered the Santa suit, he went and visited an old friend who lived in Iowa. He was there to catch up and celebrate his friend's birthday. He also took advantage of the trip and went to a gun shop there and bought 16 handgun magazines. In California, you were only allowed to buy eight at the time. Days before Thanksgiving, Bruce put up his Christmas lights as like a celebratory. My plan is here. A week before Christmas, um, the marriage between Sylvia and Bruce was officially over. Bruce agreed to pay Sylvia $10,000. She was allowed to keep the engagement ring and the dog, Saki. The next day, Bruce bought a plane ticket to Illinois, which was the closest airport to his friend's place in Iowa. The ticket was for 12.20 a.m. on Christmas Day, and the return flight was two weeks later. That same week, he rented two cars, a blue Dodge Caliber and a silver RAV4. And these were rented from different places as not to create suspicion. He packed the RAV4 with maps of Mexico and southwest United States, as well as water, food, clothing, a can of gas, a laptop, and a desktop computer. On Christmas Eve, he drove the RAV4 to Glendale near the home of Sylvia's attorney. We'll get to why later. <laughs> At some point, Christmas Eve, Bruce used some coke and got ready to go. He got to the rented Dodge Caliber and went on his way. 11.27 p.m. on Christmas Eve, Covina Dispatch got the first of many 911 calls. We're going to jump back again. You know, we're playing hopscotch now. Every year, Christmas Eve, the whole Ortega family and all their friends go to Papa Joe's and Elise's house to celebrate and be with the family. After dinner that night, all the adults were left decided to play Texas Hold'em, while all the kids went to the back of the house to play video games or upstairs to play on the computers. So trigger warning, everyone. This is where it's going to get tough. Around 11.15, 11.20 p.m., there was a knock at the door of the Ortega's house. Ortega's house. Eight-year-old Katarina... Use, use Pulowski, 
ran to the window and peeked out and saw Santa standing on the porch with a present in his hand. Katarina ran to open the door because it's Christmas Eve and Santa's there. Like, if you're an eight-year-old kid and you see Santa on your front porch, yeah, you're going to probably open the freaking door. Santa. The man in the Santa suit was obviously not Santa. It was Bruce. And he was there to cause as much chaos as possible. He was there to kill him. That was all. He shot Katarina in the face as soon as that door opened. He shot her. And then he began to spray bullets throughout the room. James and Charles were shot first. As they were getting shot and bleeding from their wounds, they tried to wrestle the guns away from Bruce. All while they screamed, it's Bruce, run. A family member that was there would say about the brothers that, quote, even bloodied, they got up, they stood up. They tried to grab him to stop him, but they couldn't, unquote. People tried hiding under the tables, while others ran to save the children in the back of the house. Bruce shot those who were hiding under the table execution style. After he was done with the guns, Bruce then unwrapped the present he had. It was a homemade flamethrower. He used it to spray racing fuel all over the house. Letitia, Katarina's mom, was the only Ortega child to survive and was the first one to call 911 from the neighbor's house. She found her daughter stumbling around outside with a gunshot wound to her face. She grabbed her and ran to the neighbor's. The flamethrower caused an explosion because of two fireplaces that were going at the time. It caused the flames to go 40 to 50 feet high. It took 80 firefighters over an hour and a half to stop the fire. Most of the young children escaped okay. Katarina survived. She must have turned her head at the moment her uh, he shot, and she got shot in the jaw. A 16-year-old girl was shot in the back as she ran for her life, and a 20-year-old girl broke her ankle while she jumped from the second-story window. Michael Ortiz was not so lucky. He, it is believed he died from the explosion as he was upstairs on the computer at the time. After all was said and done, nine people died at the hands of Bruce Pardo. He didn't get away scot-free like he was hoping, though. Due to the explosion, Bruce got second- and third-degree burns, and some of his Santa suit melted into his skin. He wasn't going to be able to make the getaway he planned out so well. He would need to get treatment for his burns. He ripped off his Santa suit, got in regular clothes, got into the Dodge, and drove to his brother's house about 40 miles away. So, I mean, that's quite the, quite the trip. Once he got to his brother's house, he took a handgun, put it in his mouth, and ended his life. So, like, another person had to suffer because of Bruce. His brother would come home around 3.30 in the morning and find him dead in a pool of his own blood on his floor by the couch. Brad um, called 911, and when the police got there, they found $17,000 cling-wrapped to his legs. They also found four handguns and 200 rounds of ammunition. When they got to his rental car, which was parked a block or two away from his brothers, they found the remnants of the Santa suit that was rigged to explode with black powder. Thankfully, the police realized that what was going to happen and were able to set it off with an incendiary device. They went to Bruce's home, where they found a bomb factory, essentially. They found five empty boxes of ammo as well for the handguns, a tactical shotgun, and more racing fuel. Bruce had planned this out for more than six months. The Ortega family wasn't his only target, so, as I said before, he also parked that rented RAV4 outside of Sylvia's lawyer's house. It is believed that he was going to go there and kill him and take off the uh, with that RAV4. 
They believed that the plane tickets were just a decoy to throw the police off. Also, his mother was on his list. Nancy was invited to the Ortega houses for Christmas that day. Um, but she had to cancel last minute. She wasn't feeling well. Bruce had not been happy with his mom since he blamed her for telling Sylvia about the son he had left and during the divorce. Uh, during the proceedings, Nancy sat with the Ortega family. She knew what kind of person he was and she loved the Ortega family. Years later, the family is still trying to heal at the enormous loss. Instead of going to church on Christmas Eve, the family goes to the graveyard to pay their respects. Nancy, Bruce's mother, is still close with the family till this day. At first, she was afraid that the family would blame her, but they, of course they never did. Thirteen children were left orphaned after this. Ladisha was left to pick up the pieces and try to explain to children, to the children that the real Santa didn't do this. The remaining family reaches out to those who are also touched by gun violence and helps any way they can. Even after everything, they remain close and still hold on to everything Papa Joe and Alicia taught them. So that is the story of the Ortega family in the Christmas Eve Massacre. Don't forget to follow and like us on all listening platforms. Give us a review, please and thank you. Also, follow us and like us on all social media. Instagram is the Macabre Family. Facebook is the Macabre Family Podcast. TikTok is Macabre Family Podcast. You can also shoot us an email at macabrefamilypod at gmail.com. I hope everyone has a safe and happy weekend. And don't forget to always stay spooky. Bye.